I encourage you to get a Bible or open to a Bible or log on to the Bible, for it is the book that we study from. And if you'd like to open to the New Testament book in the New Testament book of Philippians, and we're going to look at a passage there in just a moment, the Bible will always stand. And I appreciate Jonathan picking songs that remind us of that and remind us of how good and glorious our God truly is. The Bible, someone once said, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. I wish I could have come up with something as creative as that, but it is really the instructions necessary for being prepared for when this life comes to an end. But we do not know when this life comes to an end. That is not information that we are privy to and probably information that we wouldn't want to know. But we know that there will be a day in which we will all be appointed for death. It's an appointment that we will keep, save only the fact that if Jesus were to return and this world would end while we are alive, and we must be prepared before we leave this earth. I invite you to take your Bibles to Philippians 2, where we'll read here in just a moment, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning. There are a lot of understatements or stating the obvious kinds of things that we could acknowledge. Uh, God is good, no debate there. Uh, eating is enjoyable, and we uh, like it, and no debate there. The Northfield Boulevard Church congregation is a good church filled with good people. These are really stating the obvious, and there's no debate on these particular things. When it comes to Jesus Christ and saying that he matters and that he really matters, that also kind of goes without saying. So to argue that Jesus Christ really matters is not so much a debatable topic for most of us, though there are some in the world with whom we will engage that we will talk with, perhaps some of your family, some in your community, some in your workplace, and some in your neighborhoods that would not acknowledge the importance of Jesus the Christ. Notice that by way of introduction, I didn't say that Jesus dot, 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 he really matters. I said that Jesus Christ, he really matters. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, Lord willing, tonight, and then in three weeks in a sermon that uh, I've got slated for the middle of August, as we think about acknowledging that Jesus is more than just a person. He is the Christ. I have never seen, nor will I probably ever see, someone come forward to be baptized, someone in the middle of the night say, I'd like to obey the gospel, and the preacher, whether it be me or someone else, ask the question, do you believe that Jesus existed? That question is an unimportant question. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus existed, and acknowledging that is important. But even atheists will acknowledge that Jesus existed. Because there is historical proof to that nature. There was a man by the name of Jesus, which was a relatively somewhat common name in the first century. And even in the 21st century, in certain cultures, the name Jesus is still around. 
But do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Is a fundamentally different and more important question because that separates us from those in the world that do not believe in the authenticity of Jesus as the Son of God, as we'll talk about in just a moment here. I want to establish four reasons why Jesus Christ really matters. And this is a reminder to those of us who are Christians, which is the vast majority of those who are present, but we are working, as David pointed out a week or two ago, at spreading the seed, spreading the gospel, and we are going to interact with people who do not understand why Jesus Christ really matters. And let me suggest to you that, number one, it matters because he is the Son of God. Now, we are sons and daughters of God as well. Galatians chapter 4 talks about that, as, as well as the book of Hebrews, who talks about many sons who come to glory in Hebrews chapter 2 or chapter 3. But we need to acknowledge that when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is not a religion that is based on some dead man that lived some hundreds or thousands of years ago. And there are some memes that are out there on social media where it talks about various religious leaders in the world who say, I don't know what the meaning of life is, or this is what I believe, or this is what I suggest. And these are all men who died, and that was the end of their story. But that's not the end of the story when it comes to Jesus the Christ. For as we just recognized in partaking of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the Christ who came to earth to experience poverty for us so that we might be spiritually rich. And that was all dependent on his life coming back to him as it did after three days in the tomb. We need to acknowledge that the fact that Jesus is God's son is a predicted thing. It is a prophesied thing. It is something that goes back hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, before it actually transpired. We won't take the time to read about all the hundreds of prophecies. There are somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, prophecies directly related to Jesus himself. And I've made reference before that there are uh, thick volumes of three to 400 pages on all the prophecies related to Jesus Christ. And you can detail all those different things, but they were dedicated to his coming, to his work, to the nature of who he was, to even what he would look like, and certainly to his death, to his burial and his resurrection. For example, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 34, it would say, not a bone would be broken. And while we were partaking of the Lord's Supper, I happened to just read from John chapter 19, where surely they came to Jesus to break his bones. And what did they do? They found him already dead, so that they shoved a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. Not a bone would be broken. That is, an, I'm assuming, a very uncommon occurrence with crucifixion in the first century. Or in Isaiah chapter 7, it would say he's born of a virgin. And that's not happened before, since, or nor will it ever happen that a virgin will ever give birth to a, a child in the way that it was done by way of the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. And in Micah chapter 5, born in Bethlehem. And there are, again, another 290, give or take, prophecies particularly related to Jesus himself. 
We need to acknowledge that one of the most difficult things about Jesus is the fact that he is God's son, but he is also God himself. And I'm not about to tell you that I can accurately and fully explain that. I can do my best, and I can do so with passages much like 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that Brother Gerald took us to a few moments ago. But Jesus accepted and acknowledged this here in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Jesus is not speaking in Philippians 2. By the time that the book of Philippians is written, Jesus has been gone from this earth for around three decades or so. But the inspired writer Paul, in writing some of his final statements, says, I want this mind, which is the mindset of Jesus who was lowly and who would not, who esteemed others better of themselves and who was sacrificial and selfless, verses 3 and 4. He says, I want this mind to be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, this is the New King James Version, to be equal with God. I believe the New American Standard talks about something to be grasped or something to be held onto. And there's a couple of different ways of looking at this particular passage, depending on your vantage point, but it doesn't change the dynamic and fundamental conclusion that Paul seems to be trying to make here, which is verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, doing exactly what Brother Gerald talked about in 2 Corinthians, and he came in the likeness of men. Because Jesus is the Son of God, and in fact, that is the most well-known verse in all the New Testament, is it not? John 3, 16, for God's love the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. But here is a situation where, as God, Jesus had the power to forgive sin. You know, the most uh, prevalent example of this transpires late in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, there's probably not a month that goes by where someone in this congregation doesn't have a conversation with someone about the thief on the cross. It is the go-to passage about Jesus forgiving someone. But there are other examples, and I, I've sometimes been uh, maybe a little bit too brash in pointing out that those who know Luke 23 need to be more familiar with the rest of the Bible than just Luke 23, because Jesus forgave sin on numerous occasions. For example, here in Mark chapter 2 and verses 5 through 12, we find an example of that, and we won't take the time to read that passage, but that's a powerful story uh, that has so many applications for the way that we live and goes back to the various things that Brother David talked about a week or two ago in his lesson on evangelism. But we also need to appreciate that as divine, Jesus understood his position of power and his position of authority. I do want to go over to the first book of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 26 and read from that what is now a relatively lengthy chapter uh, in the New Testament. Late in Matthew chapter 26, the text reads that Jesus kept Silent. Now, he's before the council, the Sanhedrin. He's uh, appearing here uh, before he would go to the governor uh, and speak before him, or maybe more appropriately say, not speak before him. But here in chapter uh, 26 of the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 63, Jesus kept silent. 
The high priest answered and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's a good question. Now, the, the, the high priest, the religious leaders certainly had a different perspective on what Jesus was. But that's a good question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the living God? Jesus says in an old-fashioned way that we would not speak of today, he says, it is as you said. That's another way of saying, yep, you got it. I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am the Christ. I'm the one that's been talked about since the beginning and before the beginning. And I am the Son of God. No wonder why in verse 65, he has spoken blasphemy is the response of the religious leaders on this occasion. Why does Jesus Christ matter? Well, he matters for a lot of reasons, but we've got to acknowledge that he is God's only begotten son and that he is the one who came and laid down his life for us. And who is it that is us? Which brings us to this second observation, and that is Jesus Christ matters because I am a sinner. Someone once said that coming to a church service like this, where the assembly of the saints transpires, it's really in many ways like SA. We are Sinners Anonymous. Come together and say, hi, my name is whatever, and I am a sinner. The church is not a group of perfect people who come together to judge the rest of the world. The church is a group of redeemed people who desperately know the need of a redeemer and say we want to worship the one who redeems us and who makes it so that we have hope. And I think that's an important point to make when you deal with people who say, I don't come to church, I won't come to church, and I will never come to a church service because it's filled with a bunch of the H words, right? And you may have been criticized or accused of being hypocritical or more broadly that church people are just hypocrites. We come here, we talk one way, we sing songs, we read the Bible, we pray some prayers, and then we go out and we live our lives how we want. Now, the unfortunate thing is that much of the religious world, and I'm not the judge, does seem to do some of that. And that gives us kind of that proverbial black eye, does it not? And it makes us look bad. The worst thing that we can do is do what people accuse religious folk of doing. So we've got to make sure that when we leave, that we do not go back into the world to live like the world. So that we are the exception to the rule. Cancer is a problem. Death is an issue. Dementia is a problem. And is a sad state of affair. But the biggest problem in all of humanity is not cancer, nor dementia, nor any other ailment, nor crime, nor homelessness. It is sin. That matters more than anything. And I think we all acknowledge that or else we wouldn't be here on this occasion today. But we do need to appreciate it seems to be two or three very important things here. One of those, and this is kind of a, a, a sub point that I wanted to make because I thought that it would be important to make this point as a reminder. And it goes back to a sermon that I did maybe three months ago. And that is we need to understand that even though many of our religious neighbors will teach it, I am not born in sin. The idea 
idea of original sin is indeed a mainstay of most or at least many denominations. Where it is taught that the moment that you come into this world, you are already having sin in your life. And so a three-month-old child who has no ability to understand right and wrong, let alone the ability to speak or think uh, in, in, in very sophisticated ways, is guilty of sin because he or she is a descendant of Adam. And we have that inherited or original sin. That's what original sin is in a 20-second version. But we need to understand that Scripture teaches that this is not true. And it teaches it in the New Testament, but I think one of the greatest places to go to is in Ezekiel chapter 18, which is a passage that is well-worn in your Bibles, where for 20 verses, it seems to me, I've always thought this was interesting about the 18th chapter, is that he makes the point, then he makes the point again, then he makes the point again. He makes it about three or four different times, seemingly that it was important that we do not inherit the sins of those who are our parents or those who are around us. This is the famous, the father's teeth is set on edge and the whole idea of they have eaten sour grapes. And the whole point of this is simply to point out that we do not inherit the sin of someone else. When I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will answer for the way that I have lived and you will answer for the way that you have lived. But you will be a sinner redeemed in God's sight. We, we pray based on your obedience to him. But you'll speak for your actions. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that my choices are the origin of my sin. Romans 3.23, which we recently studied in our adult class, is a, is a passage that we've all memorized where it says that we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. Not a matter of someone else doing it and then us being guilty of it. And it seems to me that regarding sin, one must consider uh, it seems too very big things in this second point. One of those is this. A person sins when he disobeys the Lord by doing something God has said not to do. Well, that being said, we can look at thousands or at least dozens or hundreds of examples in the scripture. In Acts chapter 5, you find where Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, were deceptive and they lied. And we know that going all the way back to the book of Exodus and even back to the book of Genesis, you see the underlyings of it, that God specifically demands that lying would be something for which you would give an account Therefore, Ananias was a sinner. We could go through so many different examples in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. Say, Here's the person who sinned. It was a sin because they did something contrary to what God has said. Therefore, they are a sinner. So it's just very basic logic that even most fourth and fifth graders can really wrap their heads around. But let me also suggest to you that a person sins when he or she refuses to recognize God as the sovereign. And that is the frightening thing, it seems to me. And the reason that it's frightening is because the vast majority of people are, I would like to think, decent people who don't lie, who don't steal, who aren't unkind, and who are patient. And a lot of our neighbors 
our friends and our, our family who are not believers, they're decent people. But what is it that they have failed to do? Give the glory where it belongs and focus where it needs to be. I don't know how many times I've met someone, family, friends, coworkers, whatever the case may be, and I have remarked, or someone else has remarked, you know, they are such a good person. If only they would just become a child of God. They, they, they really have so much work done where they don't have to change an awful lot. There are people that we interact with who become Christians who do have to change a lot on the outside, maybe on the inside as well. But you are thinking of family members and friends and coworkers, as I am, that certainly may be good people, but they're not giving the glory where it belongs. I put on social media a number of years ago uh, just a very quick reference to Psalm 14 and verse 1 where it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And I took some flack for that, not from Christians, but from a, a, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing because I had called an atheist a foolish person. I'm, and, and I'm not the one calling him that, by the way. I'm just the messenger. But... The fool says there is no God. Now, I'm convinced that there might be someone uh, in the world that doesn't believe in God that would be willing to consider a belief in God. And that's a good thing, that their heart would be open, that their heart would be amendable to that truth. But for a person who says, I don't believe in God, I think this whole idea of religion is a, is a joke, I think the whole idea of the Bible that you sing about and that stands, I think it sits as opposed to standing. I think it's just nonsense what you're doing. That person is foolish in his or her thinking. And I know those are fighting words. But like a preacher friend of mine from another state said, he wasn't concerned about stepping on toes. He was more concerned about piercing hearts. And so if your toes are stepped on because you do not believe in God, I hope your heart is pierced to believe in God and to consider his ways. And let me suggest to you on a final point of this second major observation that we need to acknowledge that sin is a problem and that it is powerful in that it separates us from God. We go back to the book of Isaiah and we read that as we'll make reference here in just a moment. But this was certainly true at the beginning. Think about how wonderful it was where Adam and Eve were in the garden and everything was splendid. The work that they did was pleasant and there was work before sin, Genesis chapter 2. And the, 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 the way in which they interacted with the Lord was beautiful and God communicated with them and said, just don't eat of that one tree. And of course they did and that was sin and therefore they were separated from God. And the prophets, Isaiah, Habakkuk and others knew this, Jeremiah, as we're studying on Wednesday night, knew this to be an absolute truth. The fact is, is service to the Lord requires you 
and requires me to make a conscientious decision or choice. Do I want to serve God or do I want to serve myself? Someone a number of years ago suggested that each of us have a crown and we either wear it ourselves in service to ourselves or we set it aside and we give it over to the Lord and say, I'll let you be the boss. I thought that was kind of a neat analogy because if you do not give the crown to Jesus, you are wearing it yourself. You may say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still a decent person, but you're not serving the Lord. Matthew chapter six says that as you do good, you do so in reflection to the Lord himself. We are familiar with passages that are on the walls of some of your homes in Joshua chapter 24. As for me and my house, we choose, and I'm putting that word in there for the emphasis, we will serve the Lord. We choose to serve the Lord. Matthew chapter 6, as I mentioned here, where it says that you cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to make a choice as to what you're going to do. And so one can't be in sin and be in Christ. Now, certainly, don't get me wrong there are times where those of us who are in Christ find ourselves in sin. But we have to very quickly figure out we are in sin, pray for that forgiveness, repent of that sin, and then the Lord has promised 1 John to forgive us of that sin. So let me suggest to you a third reason here, and that is Jesus Christ matters because he is the Lamb. He's not a lamb. He's the lamb. He's the one who sacrificed himself for us. Being the lamb of God is historically significant. And that goes to the heart of what Brother Phil is taking us through, especially in the last half of the study of the book of Hebrews. Animal sacrifice, as you know, at least I'm, I'm guessing that most of you know, was a key component of Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, where there were animal sacrifices that were necessary in order to appease the Lord, in order to wash away sin, even though Hebrews chapter 10 tells us it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to wash away those sins. Speaking of which, I want to read those four verses here in Hebrews chapter 10 very quickly, where it says, the law... Having a shadow, we mentioned this this morning, of the very good, of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, part 2, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. So you have these sacrifices year after year after year, but people still cannot be made perfect. What are we going to do about that? For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats, that it could take away the sins of mankind. When Jesus came to the world... He knew that he would be the perfect sacrifice, and the Lord the Father knew that that would be the case. Go back and read Isaiah 53. Go back and read from John chapter 1, where John says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I have a sermon that I've done before, not here, but uh, elsewhere, where I just use that one verse. And you get the entire gospel message in John 1, 29. Behold, 
Look, the Lamb of God, what does he do? He takes away the sin of who? The world. And that's an important concept for us to make sure that we grasp. Being the lamb means that there are a number of key observations. Let me just spend uh, 90 seconds talking about uh, two of them or so. One is that Jesus paid the price for our sins. He's the one that purchased the church of which you and I are a part, Acts 2 and uh, other passage, Acts chapter 20. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 23, the text tells us that you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. And very late in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 24, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So Jesus paid the price. I can't do that. The shepherds of this church cannot do that. No preacher on television or on radio can make that happen for you. Only Jesus can do that. And secondly, Jesus is the lamb in that he removes our sins so that we are pure in the eyes of God. I have a friend uh, who says, this is in the era of VCR and video recording tapes. Uh, which is beyond the scope of some who are here, that it was like uh, we, on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to push play. And all of a sudden, you're going to see our lives. And then he says, in his mind, it's like you're going to see these uh, where it's been taped over with red, a red screen. And then you see our life again. And then you see red again. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of red because there's a lot of blood of Jesus covering up those sins as we play from forward to the end. I thought it was kind of a neat image. I don't know what the day of judgment is going to be like. I do know that every work is going to be brought in, both the secret thing and the things that are open, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But I also know that God says, I will forgive you of those things that you have done wrong. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, a, a powerful passage in a powerful book and the powerful part of the New Testament, uh, Paul writes, writes there, uh, and he says the following. He says, let's talk about Jesus. He talks about Jesus a lot in the first chapter, and he says, it is in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And going back late again to the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12, there John says, because your sins are forgiven, you for his name's sake. The last point that I want to make is one that I'm going to speak a little bit more about tonight. And again, in three weeks, I'm going to come back and revisit. And that is Jesus Christ is important because he is the way to heaven. The final point, the last five to eight minutes of the sermon as we draw ourselves to a close is a an arguably politically, socially incorrect point to make. And there may come a time when you and maybe me or anybody who stands up to preach or teach a class could get in trouble for making a point like this because this is not socially or politically correct. 
We've already said something here that is a problem. And I put it in big capital letters by saying that he is exclusive. Because the world will tell you that there are all kinds of options, lots of ways to get to heaven, whatever that may be. Lots of ways to get to a place where you can uh, live for eternity in bliss. You know, you... I have never in my 40-some years read an obituary where it says the person died and now is in torment or this person is, has died and is now going to spend his eternity in hell. I've never read an obituary. I'm sure there's one out there somewhere, some outlier, and someone, someone's going to find one for me and show me. But everybody goes to heaven. I read an obituary just a couple weeks ago. thought it was kind of interesting. Talked about this person died, went into the kingdom of the Lord. And then in the next paragraph, talked about some of the things that he participated in while living. And I thought, those two don't belong together. How can you do those things in paragraph two, but have paragraph one happen? There's, there's, a, there's a certain path that you and I must take in order to be faithful to our God. And so while many religions... And even non-religious people who believe in heaven teach the good person concept. The Bible says that Christ is the only way to please God. We won't take the time to reread a favorite passage of many of you in John chapter 14. In part because we're going to spend a little bit more time on that tonight. But Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, and that means no one, comes to the Father except by me. And you'll notice that he says I a lot in that verse as well as in the preceding five verses where he talks about the things that he is doing for the early followers. And in fact, Paul would revisit this concept, it seems to me, in the New Testament book of Galatians in chapter 2 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. At what point does Paul, the chief author and writer of the New Testament, as moved by the Holy Spirit, at what point does he ever suggest or hint that there are multiple ways to get to heaven? Never. At what point does Jesus suggest, I'm an option, but if you don't like my option, you can go down the list and find five or six other options. Jesus is plan A, and there is no B to Z. That's it. It's the only way to get to heaven is Jesus. You're not going to do it through a prophet who died hundreds of years ago. You're not going to do it through a prophet who died a couple hundred years ago. You're not going to do it through a belief in multiple gods. The only way to heaven is Jesus the Christ. That's one of the reasons that he matters so much. But what does it take to have Christ? Well, let me suggest to you that, and I'll speak more about this in the coming weeks, that faith in Jesus Christ is essential. And that goes back to the point that I made at the outset that we are now drawing ourselves to a close with, and that is we don't ask people to believe in Jesus in order to be baptized. Never had it happen? I'll never ask that question when asking someone to be baptized. But do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is Christ? Do you believe that he's the son of God or some variation of that kind of statement? 
In fact, Peter says, Thou art the Christ in the King James Version, the Son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus matters as the Christ because he is the way to heaven. And I would suggest to you that as we close here, that following the instructions are indeed essential. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends if you do what I've told you to do. John 14, 15 and John 15, 14. Easy way to remember those passages is just to reverse them. They're both saying a similar thing, just reversed in the order in which they're stated. And following the commands of Jesus means an obedient and an active faith. And again, this is where we depart from our religious friends and have a disagreement in the world in the sense that they will say, well, all you gotta do is believe in Jesus. I was watching TV a couple days ago, and there was an advertisement that, where a preacher man said that all you got to do is say these magic 25 words, and you'll be a Christian. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Incidentally, he never referenced passages in the Scripture when he made that statement. And so we've got to do what the Scriptures tell us to do. And so in Acts chapter 22, you find where Saul, who would become Paul, becomes a Christian and calls on the name of the Lord in Acts 22, verse 16, by being baptized. Six chapters earlier in Acts chapter 16, you have the jailer at Philippi who says, what must I do to be saved? And he believed and was baptized, Acts 16, verses 30 through 33. And then we must acknowledge that our faith in Jesus Christ must be accompanied by a true change and a full obedience to Jesus Christ. Not just a partial change, but a complete alteration of who we are and what we were. And as Paul would write to the church at Colossae, that we put to death the old man. Jesus Christ, he really matters. But let me ask you this question as we close, does he matter to you? I'm not asking, does Jesus matter? And I'm not even asking, does Jesus Christ matter some to you? But does he really matter? Of course he does or else 99% of you wouldn't be here. But the fact is, is there may be some who have never named the name of Jesus and as was taught in Acts 22, called upon the name of Jesus by being baptized. We would welcome the opportunity to help you in that endeavor today. Maybe you're thinking about it. And there are some who are present that I know, at least I, I, I think I know, have been thinking about it for some time. Now would be the best time to make that choice. But maybe you still want to study on it. We're happy to answer those questions, to study with you, to try to encourage, because we're praying for you to answer the call to be a child of God. If you are a child of God already and you're in need of prayer, Maybe it's for strength, maybe it's for forgiveness, maybe it's confession of wrong that you have done. We would love the opportunity to be of an encouragement to you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.